Welcome to Saving the Game. This is episode 41, The Types of Stories. Recorded Thursday, May 15th of 2014, with your hosts, Grant, Peter, and Brandon. Welcome to Saving the Game, I'm Grant. I'm Peter. And I am Professor Levins, also known as Brandon. Okay, there we go. We're doing another Science of Storytelling episode tonight, folks. And Brandon is going to take us to school. <laughs> Be really glad you can't see the syllabus because I'm a little scared looking at yeah, it. Brandon's got 12 pages of notes. <laughs> Peter and I, on our first hour and a half episode, had five pages of notes. It's kind of impressive. So we're going to be here until sometime in early 2017. Yeah. Uh, we will probably have to split this up into two, maybe three, which doesn't bother me. Brandon's the one doing the editing. Ha <laughs> ha. Maybe nine. I'm going to guess two. <laughs> uh, you know what? I'm going to wager two. All right. How's that? I'm going to go with nine. <laughs> I'm going with four. <laughs> All right, fair enough. He's the editor. He gets to, like, produce a 30-second in one. Ha-ha, I yeah. told you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good times. All right. Anybody have any news? Peter, you've got some news that will become relevant about when this drops. Yeah, Fear the Con 7 is coming up June 12th to 14th in St. Louis, Missouri, and I will be there. So if you want to meet me in person, that's a good place to do it if you're in the St. Louis area. Yes, and you should find Peter. He's the guy who looks like a giant steely robot with lasers coming out of his chest <laughs> and carrying saving the game I don't cards. think he looks like and a steely robot more like a clay robot I, I kind of got brassy actually from the art <laughs> but you know whatever I look nothing like my usual avatar thing he <laughs> is however going to be carrying saving the game cards so find that guy and then hug him repeatedly <laughs> oh boy You're I have a little bit of an announcement uh, that I have good news and bad news okay. All right, good news first I've started playing Hearthstone. Uh oh. <laughs> and that's the bad news too, isn't it? The bad news is I'm gonna have to add you on Battle.net and then beat you. Bad news okay. is is I've stopped playing Hearthstone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I started playing. I fell in love with Anwin, the priest, because I love being able to heal and I had a pretty good deck. I was going through playing just normal casual games and I was beating everyone. I was losing a couple times, but it's like, oh, I get like five wins for like every loss I have. And yeah. now I'm losing. I do that. When I play Hearthstone, I will either go six and one in a night or one and six that night. I cannot just go like three and three, 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 three and, four, and four, four and three. No, I am either hot or cold and I don't know what it is because I don't play casual. I play ranked and maybe I'm bouncing back and forth between people I can beat and people who can beat me. I, I don't That's know. Probably what I, was like. I probably went through all the people that I could beat, which were at my skill level. And now I'm up with people who've like bought like 20 packs mm -hmm. that I don't. Cause I'm like, yeah, that card's great. I don't have it. And I'm dead. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you want to pay for a bunch of packs with actual money. My recommendation is play the arena. You'll learn. It's half again, as much as buying a pack outright. And you'll usually get a pack as a reward or enough money to play the arena again or something like that. So, yeah, I, I played the arena once and didn't get enough money to play the arena again. I lost three times and yeah, well, okay. There's that best I did in the arena was nine and I got nine wins, which was pretty good. Enough hearthstone. If you want to hear all about hearthstone, go listen to game store profits. <laughs> Speaking of game store profits, Peter and I, we were on <laughs> episode 74. That is yeah. a brilliant segue, Grant. I, I well, have to say in fairness, 
Mike talks a lot about Hearthstone, okay? <laughs> right now it's Hearthstone and his D&D character. So, okay. But inroadsministries.com, you can find their feed or gamestoreprofits.com, I believe it is. Episode 74 has Peter and Grant on it. Although in fairness, it's mostly me because I wouldn't let Peter talk and I feel embarrassed about that. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I was just going off on stuff and Peter was like, "Oh, hey, up oh, gurps." Uh, okay. <laughs> no one likes GURPS. <laughs> no, I have. I like GURPS. I have started to like the concept of GURPS. I keep <laughs> just meaning... the concept, not the actual game. Well, you know who else likes it. GURPS? The people on Happy Jacks. That's who <laughs> likes GURPS. Yeah, but they're old and drunk and in California, and you know. No, I'm looking the Happy at Jacks guys the awesome. Google Hangout that we use without video rather dubiously, <laughs> and you can't see it. But rest assured, it's happening. Uh, yeah, and I'm remembering how much money the Happy Jacks guys and listeners raised for the charity drive, so, you know, can't speak too badly of them. They're awesome people, and they're really awesome we people. We can pick on them in that fellow podcaster sort of way. Well, though. yes, of course, and the, you know, liking GURPS way, but... You know, hey, <laughs> I snuck that one in there. I'm sorry. No, I have been meaning to give GURPS a try. I really have been meaning to give GURPS well, a try. Well, uh, whenever I finish this massive kitchen sinky campaign that I've been working on for GURPS, you can be one of my players. Excellent. All right. Enough trying to avoid it. Is this the campaign we argued about for like five hours? Yes, one in the same. <laughs> there you go. Okay. <laughs> and I right. think my answer to the double mumbo jumbo thing is probably you're just going to have to deal. Ah, <laughs> uh, but speaking of things that I learned in writing class. Uh, segway! <laughs> yes, we're totally nailing these segways. <sighs> All right. So, our Science of Storytelling series is about to resume here, probably for the next episode or three. Or nine. Just to remind you, this is the series in which Brandon teaches us things and Grant tries to stop talking. As usual, and Peter occasionally makes a snide See, I don't want to encourage yes. you guys to stop talking, especially in this one. I did say try. Brandon, if we talk too much, this will actually go nine episodes. So <laughs> yeah, It's true. But I do want to remind everyone, as usual, our Science of Storytelling series tends more towards the gaming and writing and storytelling side of things. There's not going to be a ton of theology in this one. For that, listen to our Virtues and Vices series. It's awesome. Yep. All right. That's why we have multiple series. Indeed. But we do have scripture for you that's relevant. So let's dive right into that. All righty. This is Genesis 25, verses 24 to 34. When the time came for her, Rebecca, to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. This is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. Look, I am about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. And the next one is Ecclesiastes 1.9. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. And this last one is Matthew 13.13. 13. This is why I speak to them in parables. 
Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. All right, so we are talking about common plots and stories. And we're going to go through a lot of common lists of these plots and stories. You've all heard, oh, there's only seven stories. Oh, there's only nine stories. Oh, there's only 36, things like that. We're going to kind of try and cover those. We're going to see how much detail we get into on each one. I'm sure Brandon would love to be exhaustive. Well, I am planning, at least for the latter list, to do an exhaustive, in-depth thing for a couple of the stories. Okay. But those will probably be in later episodes. That makes sense. I do want to touch on briefly, though, why these lists matter at all, as anything other than an intellectual exercise. Because they really do matter. (laughs) Yes, but why? Why? And I came up with two ideas, and Brandon and Peter, help me out here, you know, add more to this if you've got one. To divide it up for role players, I think there's two sets of reasons. For GMs and for writers, they're extremely helpful, these big lists of plots and stories, in framing a particular story and working out ahead of time all the really necessary elements. Okay, I'm doing this particular type of story. It's got to have some of these elements. Mm -hmm. If I'm doing a story about adultery, there's got to be two people who are married. Things like that. Second, they're extremely helpful in coming up with a particular plot in the first place. Here's a cool idea that I hadn't thought of before, but looking at this list, I got this idea about this thing, and I have this one NPC who could fit really well, and then your brain starts working. It's a way to Mm -hmm. restrict that possibility space and say, ah, I'm doing this kind of story, what pops out? As I am fond of saying, it is really hard to be creative in a vacuum. Yes. You actually need some sort of restrictions on what you're doing to actually truly be creative. Because nine times out of ten, if you ask someone to think about something they're going to go right back to the things they like. Right. Or they're just going to cast around in their environment until they fixate on, like, an unsharpened pencil, and you'll get a story about that. And there will be paralysis first. You know, hey, quick, Peter, tell me a story. Okay. Uh, Uh, I, uh, let's see here. Paralysis. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But if I said, hey, Peter, tell me a story about alien abductions in the 1920s, all of a sudden, you've got a lot to hang your hat yeah, on. Yeah. So. Well, do you want me to start with War of the Worlds, or do you want me to make something else up? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. We got too much to do. So that's kind of the GMs and writer side of things, which, you know, not much differentiation between those two. I want to argue with there's not much difference between GM and writers. In those specific ways of looking at it. There's a lot of difference between the yeah. two. <laughs> but in the terms of using these lists, they kind of serve the same purpose. They'll sort of serve the same purpose. There are going to be some stuff that I've even noted down in some of the later ones that I say, this is not a good story to use because of these reasons that you will never get in a role-playing game. Right. Because the one thing you don't have in a role-playing game is total control. Well, that's true. But, at any rate, I, I think very generally... They're kind of the same, right? The GM typically is the one presenting a plot. For players, I think coming up with these plots as background is helpful rather than, uh, I was this guy. It's, hey, here's this plot built right into my backstory that hasn't been resolved yet. It's this natural dramatic arc. How about we start with that or pick that up at some point? You build a plot hook right into the character. And frankly, it's nice to have a list of plots handy to instigate rather than sitting around waiting for the GM to give you one. Which reminds me, I have some ideas for our Shadowrun campaign. Good, because I don't. Get started. We'll get into that off mic. (laughs) You've got down here three very basic classifications of plots. 
Yes. So these are things that I've heard in my time as a student, and I think I possibly saw a video somewhere in some sort of YouTube thing that mentioned these. But the whole idea is, if you want to boil everything down to the most basic elements, there are only three stories. There is drama, there is tragedy, and there is comedy. And they differ in these very simple ways. In a drama, the main characters will end up in a place better than where they started. They will start low, they will end up high. You'll watch them fight their way up. And in drama, in order for it to be successful and fulfilling as a narrative, the thing that might happen needs to happen. It's the one in a million chance that pays off. For example, in Star Wars, at the very conclusion, you've got Luke running down the Death Star Trench, and he turns off his targeting computers and makes the shot blind. Now, that is a one in a million shot. And, of course, you'll have so many people who talk about, well, the thing should be shielded. Why is it even there? Blah, blah, blah. What people don't say is, why did he miss? Because if he missed, it's a pretty bad story. All of a sudden, we've kind of gone into tragedy there because we lost everything. And that would require a different setup. And so going into tragedy, the main character ends up worse than where they started off. A tragedy is only successful when the thing that could happen happens. It's the one thing you forgot, overlooked, that comes back to ruin everything. That would be like him coming down the Death Star Trench, and he turns on his targeting computer, and there's a glitch. Earlier on, he forgot to recalibrate it. He misses the shot because of that. The whole world's blowed up, and it's all his fault. Right. And the third one is comedy. The truest part of a comedy ends in the exact same place it starts. Right. Nothing is gained or lost, really, and it's the journey that makes it entertaining. This is also why Noble Blair from the FTB forums is fond of saying that in comedy, there are no rules so long as it's funny, which is kind of true. You can break any rule so long as it's humorous because the point of comedy right. is the journey. This is true of most comedies out there. Sometimes you'll have comedies that are tragic or black comedies or comedies that are more dramatic or dramedies, which can sort of change, but the point of comedy is the journey. And the thing to remember about all of these is the fact that the end result has to be foreseeable. Otherwise, it's deus ex machina. Even if it's like, right. well, there was this one guy in the back of the plot who was doing this all along. I just never told you about him. You need to tell him about it, because if he just appears at the end to ruin everything or save everything, it's not fulfilling. Right. The audience has to be able to foresee it, not the author. Because yeah. the, the audience is going to go, oh, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. Or, like, even if they don't remember it, like, the guy that you introduced, first ten minutes, comes back in the last scene because of something he said. People go, oh, I totally forgot about that guy. But he was there. Mm -hmm. It needs to make sense. All right, now... As I said, those are the three basic types. However, they are so vague as to be unuseful when you are writing a story. Right. Because basically everyone already knows that, so you have to get a little more specific. And there are a couple different lists that I have. Here's Booker's seven story archetypes are the most famous. By the way, I've gotten these lists and sort of summaries, I believe, from a mixture of Wikipedia and TV tropes. Okay. So Booker's seven story archetypes are Overcoming the monster, the hero learns of a great evil threatening the land and sets out to destroy it. Rags to riches, surrounded by dark forces who suppress and ridicule him, the hero slowly blossoms into a mature figure who ultimately gets riches, a kingdom, and the perfect mate. 
The quest, the hero learns of a MacGuffin and desperately wants it and sets out to find it. The voyage and the return, the hero sets off into a magic land with crazy rules, ultimately triumphs over madness and returns home more mature when he set out. The comedy, but I sort of call this the romantic comedy because of what it's called. Hero and heroine are destined to get together, but dark forces are preventing them from doing so. Story conspires to make the dark forces repent, and suddenly the hero and heroine are free to get together. Then there's tragedy. The flip side of overcoming the monster plot, our protagonist character is the villain. We get to watch him slowly spiral downward into darkness before he's finally defeated, freeing the land of his evil influence. And finally there's rebirth. As with the tragedy plot, but our protagonist manages to realize his error before it's too late and does a heel face turn to avoid the inevitable defeat. And a heel face turn is just turning from a bad guy into a good yes. guy, basically. Yes, for those who don't understand, heel face turn is a wrestling term. You have a heel who is a bad wrestler and a face who is a good wrestler. And a lot of times good wrestlers become bad wrestlers and bad wrestlers become good wrestlers. Because it's the world's sweatiest soap opera. Yeah. <laughs> when a bad guy becomes good, it's a heel face turn. He's becoming a bad guy to a good guy. When a good guy goes bad, it's called a face heel turn. So those are seven basic story plots. Grant, you've put a whole bunch more stuff in here. Yes. This is an interesting one because I originally heard about this from an RPG book. There was a French author in the late 19th century named Georges Polti, and I don't speak French, so I probably mispronounced that, and I apologize. The title of the work in English is The 36 Dramatic Situations. It was a continuation of Carlo Gozzi's work. Polti's 36 Dramatic Situations really sort of set the stage for all of these lists and kind of this real theory of plots and that sort of thing. You can still get the work. You should get a modern translation, according to all the reviews I've read, because it's very technical, and reading technical discussion of drama and the English language, as translated from French in 100-year-old English, gets tiresome. So get a modern translation if you want to pick this up. But it's supposed to be pretty cool. As with all of these lists, there are a lot of critiques of the list, and a lot of these you'll kind of go, oh, those sound kind of the same. Likewise, Pulte drew almost entirely from classical Greek and French works with only a few samples from outside of those. So there's some people who say, oh, he's only looking at this small subset. There's others and yada, yada, yada. I'm not enough of an expert to tell you yay or nay on that. But I learned about this from the GM section of the fourth edition Legend of the Five Rings core rulebook, which is why I wanted to bring this up. Because this is something more RPG authors and more RPG companies should trouble themselves to do. Especially for books with a very strongly themed game and setting, like Legend of the Five Rings. They list all of these with some sample keywords and go into some specific examples of how to fill these out in several different ways in the setting. I did want to run through these real quick just to give you a very quick overview of these 36 dramatic situations, according to Pulte. And I'm doing these in alphabetical order. He may do them differently in the book. But these are abduction, adultery, all sacrificed for passion, ambition, conflict with a god, crimes of love, daring enterprise, deliverance, disaster, discovery of dishonor of a loved one, an enemy loved, enigma, familial hatred, familial rivalry, fatal imprudence, faulty judgment, 
involuntary crimes of love, loss of loved ones, kinsman kills unrecognized kinsman, madness, mistaken jealousy, murderous adultery, obstacles to love, obtaining, pursuit, recovery of a lost one, remorse, revenge, revolt, rivalry between superior and inferior, sacrifice of loved ones, self-sacrifice for an ideal, self-sacrifice for kindred, supplication, vengeance by family upon family, and lastly, victim of cruelty or misfortune. Now, I personally like the specificity of this list. For the reasons we talked about before, I like narrowing things down a little bit and being prompted more specifically. Having said that, we can't go into 36 in detail here, so we're going to do these other seven, but it's, I like this particular list, so pick up Pulte's work if you're really into that sort of thing, or if not, pick up the Legend of the Five Rings core rulebook, because you should have that anyway. Indeed, I think that's a pretty good list. It's got a whole lot of ideas for people can draw from, and I'm sure it goes into detail, but again, you can't <laughs> Yeah, I'm not going to go into detail on 36 of these. That's <laughs> crazy talk. Even crazier yeah. than what we're planning. That would get us to nine episodes. By the way, I want to chime in real quickly here, and just call out or perhaps remind our listeners that a lot of the time writing resources in general things like tv tropes name generators books on plots and that sort of thing are wonderful resources for gms with almost no modification whatsoever absolutely indeed the entire writing section at your local bookstore is just a huge treasure trove of gming advice waiting for you to open it so (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. Very true. And if you are going there, I highly recommend looking up Blake Snyder's books on movie making because they are what has helped me a whole lot. Of course, there are a whole bunch of other script writing and screenwriting and just plain writing books out there. But the Save the Cat series are what I'm going to be drawing for. So please go out and get those if any of these interest you and you want to know more because I cannot cover everything that is written in that book. (laughs) Fair enough. What I do have is a sort of in-detailed list of the basically 10 movie plots that Blake Snyder lays out there, they are a little broader than what Grant has written with his 36 up here, but we're going to go into a little more in-depth so that you don't just see supplication and not know what that means. So the first thing that I want to talk about is what he calls the Golden Fleece, and this is comparable to Brooks' The Quest. It is the road movie. It is the heist movie. Sometimes it's a series of seemingly unrelated encounters over which we have character development for the hero. Like Big Fish. Yes, like Wizard of Oz. This also doesn't have to be necessarily a movie of travel. The journey that the people take can be something that is more internal, but we'll get to that in a second. Even if the goal is never reached, the hero learns something about themselves, which is the truest point of these kinds of stories. It's about the growth of the characters. Golden Fleece, Star Wars... Lord of the Rings, definitely. And the three essential ingredients that Snyder puts out here are the road, the team, and the prize. For the road, it's the journey is being made, and it need not be a physical road or a distance. It could be a metaphor, like time spent on a mission or in a prison. That's why I would call probably a lot of escape movies where they're pulling a team together would be into the Golden Fleece also. Yeah. Ocean's Eleven immediately comes to mind for me. Yes. You've got Mm -hmm. the journey of the main character, you've got the team, and of course you have the prize. Actually, the first book of the Mistborn series, which is a well we go back to often here, would also qualify. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. Now, the next thing we have is the team. They represent things that the heroes lack. Experience, expertise, skills, attitude. And the hero lacks it because usually in stories, you kind of want a bland hero. To point this out, let me bring up, you both know Star Wars, right? Sure. Yep. When is the last time that you have ever quoted something that Luke Skywalker said? Uh, roughly the third of never. When I cut off my hand. Oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> this is something that I actually learned from Cracked. In the roles of action and things like that, what we look for are characters who are very neutral mask, who, like, we can project our emotions onto. And we can project our emotions into them because they aren't showing I have actual feelings. They're just blankly staring at the camera. And I know there have been tests where people have shown like pictures of food and then someone who has a neutral face and people read into, oh, that guy looks so hungry. It lets us experience our own emotions through the character and this bonds us to. Right. Hmm. Okay. Genuinely interesting. Of course, this is less of a issue in an RPG because audiences are already projecting themselves into the story, quite literally. They are the characters. Right. And they are also the team. Mm-hmm. So They're the team themselves. Yeah. They might have some NPC people that they pick up along the way, which is probably what you're going to need. Maybe it's a bunch of people. Maybe it's just one. The other things about these is that you can sometimes get a mashup of things. There's going to be something called the buddy love later down. So if you have two people going on it, it might be a Golden Fleece Buddy Love movie or right. story. And now the prize. Of course, the prize is simple. It is the physical or mental goal of the journey. And it doesn't need to be obtained. In the book, they talk about how Rocky, in one of the ones where he's fighting Apollo Creed, loses. Yeah, first Rocky. It doesn't right. matter that he didn't win the fight. He already got training and stuff that he needed. And he made his growth. So not reaching the end doesn't mean that the story is a total failure. As long as, like, the hero comes out better, it can be a drama rather than a tragedy. Because they go, well, we didn't get the prize, but man, I learned something. And they get something better than what they want. Now, the main draw for this kind of story is the personal growth of characters over the stories. And this is a really great idea for the RPG plots, because probably a majority of your RPG plots are already this. If they're not superhero stories, or dude with a problem, because those are the other really main ones. The next story that I want to go into is called Institutionalized. This could be also another escape story or a slice-of-life story. This one tells the tale of a group that could be mental patients, like the ones in One Flew Over Cuckoo Nest, the Doctors of MASH, or the Mafia family of The Godfather. Yeah, what comes to mind for me immediately is Catch-22, where it goes into details of everybody in this one unit on the Italian front in World War II. Brandon, would the movie Identity fall into this, or is that in something that's coming up later? Tell me what Identity is. I am not familiar with it. Never mind, because I don't want to spoil it for you. (laughs) Okay. All right. The story tells the pros and cons of putting a group ahead of ourselves. It honors the group, but yet it exposes the problems of one's own identity to it. That is a quote that I got directly off of TV tropes. A lot of times it deals with a rebellion. In fact, it's one of the key points in this. If your story is about a whole bunch of unrelated stories that intersect or a whole bunch of people that may or may not have their own ideals and things, your stories is probably this. I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. So every Tom Clancy novel. Probably. I don't 100% know because I'm not familiar with Tom Clancy. Somewhat, yeah. Keep in mind, these things can be mixed and matched. So there might be elements of institutional along with, I don't know, a golden fleece. It could be these people are on a journey, and while they're on a journey you're getting all the trouble and drama that's in their party. Yeah. To answer your question, Peter, Hunt for Red October, for example, yeah, it has a lot of intersecting, seemingly unrelated events, 
but there's no... I was actually thinking Rainbow Six. Yeah, I haven't read that one, but... I can't really blame you. It's a doorstop. There's not really these other elements, so I'm not sure about that one. Okay, we'll see. The essential ingredients for the story are the group. The group should be somewhat crazy, even self-destructive in its environment. Office space. So, any good RPG. Okay. (laughs) We're going to get back to that. The story is basically about this group. They are the plot. They are the main thing that drives it. They can be a family, a business, an organization, a group of traveling adventurers. And it should usually contain a couple different characters, such as the automaton, the guy who's entrenched in the group. He is the company man, the face, the guy who's everything for the group. Like, I no longer have a soul of my own. He's sort of one thing that you can become. Then you want to have sort of the rebel, the character who's probably going to be a breakout character, because as we explained above with Han Solo, if you're putting a main character in, you're going to want them pale-faced and not really experiencing a whole bunch. Whereas your breakout characters, your Han Solos, they can have as much awesomeness as they want because they're not the person you're instantly drawn to in the story. And that person will be the newcomer to group, who acts as a point-of-view character and probably sort of lets us know what's going on. The breakout character who I explained earlier and I sort of got away from, his role is to expose the group's goals as a fraud, sort of say everything that's wrong with it. And so as you can clearly see, there's already conflict here, which is going to lead you to the choice, which is the second action, which is, in every story, the choice here is, is it them or is it me? It's kind of uncanny because you've just described the three player characters in our Shadowrun group. <laughs> it's like, that's Miyako, that's Crash, and that's Frost. <laughs> well, <laughs> congratulations. You're in an institutional story. <laughs> oh, yeah. Probably not, but. <laughs> no, no, they are. I, I think our gaming group should be institutionalized, but yes. <laughs> the choice is me or them, and that will lead to the sacrifice, which is. Something's got to be given up, and giving that up will lead to the final decision of one of three endings of the story. Either the characters are going to join the system and become a willing participant in it. They're going to become the automaton. Or they're going to seek to destroy it. They're going to sort of become the breakout character. They're going to burn it to the ground. Just destroyed it. Or you're going to destroy yourself. Like, you won't make any decisions. You'll stay exactly where you are. You won't become part of the group. But you sort of give up your soul in doing it. Blake Snyder calls it as a form of suicide in the characters. And this could also be, or maybe the character will somehow just leave and go away and lose everything, which will also be a form of suicide, but not a literal uh, one. I'm kind of getting from this fight club. You have the guy who shows up to say, hey, this is a fraud. Your life is a fraud. You need to do this other thing. You get slice of life stuff. You get a moral choice and a kind of a group identity of the people involved in Fight Club. And then at the end, what happens to the main character? What does he decide to do? A lot of these can be twisted and turned into doing interesting things. I'm going to get to one of these in a little bit down here. The main draw of this one is the celebration of self and the tendency for it to be a cautionary tale. Because... You get to see what it is like when you sell out your soul to a group of people. And that is why I think it has a lot of pull and a lot of weight in our society. Okay, I take it back. That's not our Shadowrun group. Mm-hmm. Hopefully not ever. They're all kind of friendly with each other. Well, no, but there's the choice, right? Yeah. It's not necessarily what happens. It's we have this choice to do that or not. True, but the group itself that they're in would have to be somewhat self-destructive. And it, it tends to be that players themselves don't eat each other. 
unless you're in a highly PvP game. Yeah, the, this particular Shadowrun group is like the opposite of self-destructive. Yeah. Really, this is more like my first Shadowrun group where we actually all exploded. Ah. Yeah. W- literally? Um, somebody had a whole lot of C4 and a flying drone. <laughs> well, that's definitely one way to go out with a bang. <laughs> oh, hey, in the pun box yeah. with you. All right. It wasn't a pun. As Peter has sent to the pun box, this could be an institutional story, but likely the group that you would have to rebel against would be the corporate mandate and things right. like that, rather than your actual group. Because I know that Shadowrun itself is a very dark thing, and Shadowrunners do sort of rebel against the system and try to destroy it in many different ways. Yeah. They- All right, so this moves us on to the next one, which is actually one of the more interesting ones that I want to see even a sort of religious idea, and that is the monster in the house. This is nearly every horror story you have ever heard or seen, or read. Typical one is the myth of the Minotaur. You're stuck in a maze with a half-man, half-bull guy, and he's trying to kill you. There's one simple rule, don't get eaten. And the main things that are going to this story is the monster, the house, and the sin. Now, of course, the monster is the killer. It may take a little form as a monster alien. It could be a supernatural force. It needs to be something that is somewhat supernatural that is somewhat killing people. Because even if it's revealed to be just a guy, it has to have an air of supernatural power while it's going around murdering everyone. Even if the supernatural power is they've read the plot five pages in advance, and so they know where to be to get you. Right. Now, the house is, again, not necessarily a house. It is an isolated, confined region where the victims, actors, participants, characters can't easily escape from and it's also what the monster calls home. Now, again, it doesn't have to be an actual place. In Jaws, the island that has the sharks around it is the house. They're all trapped there, surrounded by the the monsters that are going out there. In the ring, the seven days that you have to live is the house. Because within seven days, the thing is going to get you. Final destination is Death's List. Because no matter where you go, Death will always follow you. But he has these rules. And so you are trapped no matter where you go. Um, More classically, Freddy Krueger's ability to kill you in your dreams make your own biological needs the house. Because you have to sleep sometime. Right. Now, the most interesting thing that I found that I did know, because it's pretty easy for anyone who's seen horror movies, yeah, it has a monster, and yeah, they're in isolated places. This is why cell phones were the bane of existence (laughs) in horror stories, and that's why every horror story gets rid of the cell phone in some way. Oh, we don't have signal. Oh, it fell and broke. Because the ability to call someone when you're in an isolated area ruins everything. But what you might not have realized is that everyone in a horror story has committed some sort of sin. It is a unifying actor of various acts that justifies the presence of the monsters in these characters' lives. In fact, the monster itself needs to be related or created from the sin. I know what you did last summer, where the sin is they nearly killed the guy, Uh, They thought they killed him, and they just left him on the side of the road, and then this guy's coming back to murder them all. Or in Alien, which is actually a monster in the house movie, the house is just the ship, their sin is hubris. They go to a place where they're not supposed to go in search of wealth and greed. And so they go in there, and they enter the alien's domain, and that gives the alien a right to kill every single one of them, because you came into my place. Right. The sin needs to be something obvious that the audience and characters are aware of, or are made aware of it sometimes, but it can be something subtle, as I mentioned, with hubris. Characters only survive 
by realizing the sin and atoning in some way, which balances the scales of justice. It's also important that these people have committed a sin because otherwise you're going to get angry and upset at the movie. Right. These people have done nothing wrong and yet they're being killed. It doesn't make sense. Okay, whatever, I'm turning it off. Unless you're just watching it for torture porn. In which case... Yeah, Yeah, I think the pull of the genre here is the justification and the vindication. People getting what they deserve. And if you don't establish that your victims deserve the monster in their lives, the movie will fail. Also, if you don't have a good house. That's why people go, run the other way! If run the other way is an option, like, no. Okay, I actually want to stop you here for a second because I have some questions about this. Sure. Because that seems a little bit counterintuitive to me, and I want to unpack that a little bit. I would think that the best way to make the monster truly horrific would be that it just anything that's around, including perhaps even especially people that don't deserve it, are its favorite victim. I think that there are some stories that do that, but then the story that gets put in there is that it's either sloth or ignorance would be their sin there. They don't know about the monster's existence. And there are certainly some innocent people who just get killed in slasher films. But your main characters, the people that you're going to sit around and watch die, you have to, in some way, hate them. Yeah, otherwise you lose the audience. Yeah. It's not about showing how evil and horrible the monster is. In a lot of these, you could almost say the monster's the protagonist in a very weird, twisted way. Yeah, I'm getting that from the notes here. I'm having a little bit of difficulty wrapping my brain around it. Because it, it seems it seems to me like the ultimate monster would be something that would look at somebody and said, nope, you've done nothing wrong, and I'm going to kill you anyway. Yeah. True, but that doesn't create a satisfying story. Okay. Right. And that might also be sort of a out-of-the-bottle story, reading ahead here a little bit. You've got something that you've got to stop. It's not that you have deserved the violence is that you're trying to stop it and protect others. It's a different kind of story. Protecting innocence versus deserving... Okay, I'll, I'll stop derailing the podcast then, and let's let him continue. No, no, it's a valid point, but I think it's a different kind of story at that point, where it's, this is something unjust, and I need to stop it and protect these innocents, versus I need to deal with my own sin or my own problems that I have brought down upon myself that's taken this physical monstrous form. Okay, that makes sense. And the other thing I do want to say is, this is movies, this is stories, this is not real life. In real life, that would be what the monster would do. But the thing is, stories, they impose rules, and they make everything right. Because I think deep down, we tell stories because we want to make our own world seem like a place that has rules, where the good guy wins, where the bad guy is punished. If people die, there's a reason that they deserved it. Yeah. Everything is okay in the end. The tragedy has to be something that they brought upon themselves. Yes, it's a thing that might happen. It's not something just way out of the ballpark that comes in and just kills everyone. Because I guarantee you, if you did some, a story like that, your players, your anyone would stand up and be like, well, that sucked. Yeah. It's like the old DM thing. A dragon lands and eats your party. Your players are not going to think, well, that was a great game. Yeah, I got that. I'm just thinking, I suppose earlier I was describing the difference between a monster in the house and a fantasy dark lord of some kind. Right. And that's setting up a great story about protecting those people and trying to prevent further tragic, senseless deaths. But it's not a story in and of itself. I gotcha. Okay. Okay. So the next one we have is the superhero. I'm sure you all know what a superhero story is. Oh, yeah. But it doesn't necessarily have to be a man in a cape. It's true. Sometimes they wear tights. 
Yes, sometimes we're at types. It's an extraordinary person finds himself in an ordinary world, and the three things you really have to have is powers or a mission. That's what sets him apart from the ordinary world. And now, mm-hmm. the archetypal one of this is basically Spider-Man's origin story, right? Well, any superhero, I would say. Yeah. Right, but I mean, his seems to cleave to this especially tightly. Mm, yeah, okay. Well, Superman has it too. He's got a power and a mission. He's got a nemesis, and he's got a curse. Okay. He's got even a greater weakness than Spider-Man does. Superman has the kryptonite. That's true. The reason he has that such a powerful curse is because he has such powerful powers. Whereas Spider-Man, yeah, he's got some really neat things and he can do things, but he's basically a guy. Well, and so they gave I, him... I'm actually going to disagree. Well, okay. and I think well, his weakness is his relationships. First thing, I think we need to move on and quickly define nemesis and curse here, right? Because we've talked about mission, but let's talk nemesis and curse. And then let's come back to this. All right, the nemesis is the villain. They need to be equal or greater in power than our hero, even if the hero's powers is different than our villain's. Like Lex Luthor. Lex Luthor is arguably more powerful than Superman in politics and financial things. Well, and he's a great mirror of the hero, which is your next thing, where Superman has tremendous physical might and a strong moral code, but he doesn't have a lot of political power, whereas Lex Luthor has... No physical power, usually, but he's willing to do anything, and he's willing to pull all of his strings to make those things happen, and he's got the resources to make it happen. Yes. But the one difference between the nemesis and the hero always is that the nemesis lacks faith. They don't believe that they're special, because they're not. They know deep and down inside that they're just like everyone else, no matter how hard they've worked for Mm -hmm. it. They are not the special, unique snowflake that the superhero is. And the superhero knows it because they've been told it by their origin story. You are destined mm-hmm. for greatness. Great power has great responsibility, etc. Okay. That's what drives the villain to seek out and destroy the hero. Because if they get rid of the hero, then they can be special. Because there is no more chosen one. Right. I defeated him. He wasn't special after all. So in other words, syndromes when everyone's special, no one will be, quote, from The Incredibles. Yep. It's kind of a, a good twist on it. Instead of defeating the hero by killing him, it's, he's defeating the hero by removing his special. Well, he did defeat the hero well, by yeah, killing them. <laughs> well, yeah, I know, but he's got two goals. First of all, killing him off, and second, by removing this concept of heroes as somebody better yeah. than anyone else. To know, he only wants to do that after he's done. Because he said, after I've had my fun, I'll sell my inventions, and I'll make it so that no one else can follow I, I'm going to disagree with you yeah. a little bit on there, but we can move on. Yeah. Again, the curse, it's the Achilles heel that always is going to lay the hero low. It's their weakness. Batman would be dead parents. Actually, I would say Batman's would largely be poor mental health. Dead Robins. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I mean, he's paranoid. He's obsessive. Suspicious. Yeah, he's a mess. And this is where I'm going to disagree with you on Spider-Man. I think Spider-Man's got a more interesting curse than these other two. His curse is he's got to maintain this fiction of a normal life. Well, he's got a aunt that he's kind of taking care of who lives in a little brownstone building in the Bronx or Brooklyn or whichever. I don't know. But that's why I said it's his relationships that are his. Yes. Well, right. But it's the relationships for his normal identity. And he cannot let anyone know about the fact that he's Spider-Man. Yeah. Yeah. And the curse can simply be isolation, like not getting to be with a person you love, which is a common trope. Yeah. Superman. The only reason he gets to be with Lil and Slain is he gives up his powers. Yes. The appeal for the story is their own desire for greatness. 
and remembrance of dealing with other people that just doesn't get your ideas. Because we've all been laid low by the boss who goes, you know, I know you said that'd be a good idea, but we're going to go this other way. This small, tiny person, and we just want to remember that we're greatness. And let's face it, nearly any combat-heavy RPG, you're probably going to be dealing with superheroes. In a world where house cats can kill commoners, your level 2 cleric is a god among men. And it only gets more so as he gets more levels. Yeah. Yeah. Now... From the opposite of superhero, we've got Dude with a Problem, which is instead of the extraordinary man finding himself in the ordinary world, we have the ordinary man finding himself in the extraordinary circumstances. You wake up outside, and it's the apocalypse. You hear a knock at the door, you open it up, and it's an alien invasion. You're sitting on a train, and a girl comes in and pulls you into a spy thriller. Right. The three concepts here are the innocent hero, the sudden event, and the test of survival. Basically, the innocent hero, he never asks to be involved in what's going on. He just gets pulled into it by the sudden event. It comes on him like that, and then he's embroiled in this huge story. And, of course, that event is going to put him in life-or-death situations that he's never had to face before. He's ill-equipped. One of the stories that I instantly think of when I think of this is The Tourist, which I think is a great example of what not to do. Because... The tourist tried to tell the story of a dude with a problem where Angelina Jolie is supposed to meet a super spy boyfriend on a train, but he writes her a letter that says, pick someone who's random and pretend he's me to throw the cops off him. So she picks Johnny Depp. Okay. He gets embroiled in this whole big thriller. And then at the end, it blows its entire premise because they make Johnny Depp the guy all along. Okay. He was never a dude with a problem. They tried to take this and well, let's make a twist on it. But that twist invalidated everything that was special about the story. Right. To give an example where it's pretty much straight down the line, dude with a problem, you have Independence Day, mm-hmm. where you have a innocent mathematician, computer science guy, whoever Jeff Goldblum's playing, the guy with the MacBook, who all of a sudden, wait a minute, there's aliens above my house, and now I'm in the White House, and now the White House is blowing up, and I'm flying away, and now we're at Area 51, and now I'm in an alien mothership trying to blow it up with a nuke. With Will Smith. (laughs) Things get increasingly, increasingly crazy. He steps out of an extraordinary circumstance into a more extraordinary circumstance. Right. And that's, I think, a good straight-down-the-line example of it. And it doesn't always have to be supernatural. Sometimes it could be just spy throw. What was the Hitchcock movie? Stranger on a Train? Something like that? Uh, Strangers on a Train would probably not be a dude with a problem, really, because they don't have an innocent hero. It's a twist on it. He's kind of an innocent hero. He gets involved kind of by accident, and then all of a sudden, wait a minute, this is real, this is happening, I've got to deal with it. The guy is stalking me and doing other terrible things. It builds towards that. It's not somebody supernatural, it's just kind of a crazy dude who you sort of brought on yourself. There's a certain amount of the the monster in the house there, too. But it's got a little bit of a dude with a problem take on that concept. I I can see that. Now, I think that the main draw here with this one is probably ego-stroking. It makes us all think, well, yeah, I could fight the aliens, too, with Will Smith. Wolverines! <laughs> we could totally fight off the Russians as high school yeah. students. <laughs> yeah. And, again, this also works great for role-play games, because if your characters aren't going to be Superman, they're going to be dudes with problems. Because yeah. your level 2 cleric looks like he's a god to the commoner, but he looks like a tasty snack to that level 20 dragon. Right. Or even to that level 7 troll or whatever. This is yeah. kind of, at the end of it, you sort of become a Superman. Because yeah. you've been through all of this. 
You started off as a dude with a problem, and you grew up into that role. Okay, I can buy that. Now this brings us to Out of the Bottle, which is an interesting one because it's two kind of storylines in it. Wishes and curses. In a wish, hero makes a wish. It's either spoken or unspoken, or he has some sort of desire, and he gets it filled or granted, usually from something unexpected or an odd source. Like in big... Tom Hanks goes to the vending machine, puts his quarter in, and makes a wish, and Zoltar goes, your wish is granted. And the next morning, he's an adult. Right. The hero has the wish fulfilled as part of Act 2, until we learn the full consequences of the wish around at the midpoint. There's sort of a probably a nice job breaking it, hero, where we learn that, oh, you've ruined things. You going around and playing with your ability to, like, black out the sun really creates... Something interesting. It gets cold here without the sun. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The hero has to usually go back and reverse what they have done or somehow deal with the consequences of the problems they themselves have created by having this wish. In The Cursed, it's opposite. We have our protagonist who's a jerk. He's got a problem or desire that he may not know needs to be filled or maybe he's ignoring it or maybe he's fulfilling it incorrectly, and the protagonist must have some redeeming qualities, otherwise these, the audience is not going to root for him in the end, and you'll lose your movie. I'm kind of wondering if the never-ending story falls into this a little bit. It's got some of this, I want to be out of here, and then, oh wait, you're there, but you brought a lot of baggage along the way. I've seen some elements in there. I'm not going to say, no, it, it doesn't Like work. I said, a little bit. The person in the curse, he runs afoul of some magical force that complicates his life. It could be a birthday wish. It could be a motivational speaker in an elevator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's got something that now complicates his life. And he must find redemption from his jerk-ass state to become a normal human being. And learning the lessons breaks the magic and usually lets him get what he wanted all along. The three important ingredients of this are the wish, the curse what the hero either asked for or had imposed on him by another. The rules, which are the supernatural laws of the world that supersede the natural world, and these will guide the story's problems. In Liar Liar, Jim Carrey can't lie. He's a lawyer. He has to lie for his job. Oh. But he can't. Okay, go ahead. And then the final part is the lesson, what the hero is going to learn from this experience. The Little Mermaid, like the Disney movie, seems to follow this almost exactly. Uh, Have you seen Groundhog Day? Because that sort of fits in it, too, along with anger management. No, I saw the Groundhog Day-like episode of Stargate, and that's as close as I've come. (laughs) Groundhog Day is worth seeing if for no other reason than you'd get to see what my childhood hometown looks like because they came in and repainted it and filled it there. Really? Awesome. Neat. Yeah, it actually wasn't filmed in Pennsylvania, despite the fact that it takes place there. It was filmed in a small town in northern Illinois. They actually filmed Leatherheads in my town. and Really? Yeah. Huh. They filmed House of Cards in my town. All right, then. The appeal of the stories, I think, comes from the concept of complacency. These stories teach us to be happy with what we have and not look for an easy way out, because they are always cautionary tales, because the wish goes awry. And I don't think that this is... A story that's often going to be used in RPGs as a main plot, but it has some precedence in A Wish Gone Awry, which is a classic D&D trope. But even with that trope, it requires the characters either make a wish or be jerks. And that's controlling the players, which you can't really do. Mm -hmm. However, it could be something that is stumbled onto second or third hand, or it could be a story that's handled organically if you just chuck a wish at the group, see what they do, and then 
let the cards fall from Okay, so how does this come back to the sealed evil in a can thing that we were kind of talking about back when I was making a case for a really awful monster and monster in the house? Because this seems like this is very driven by the hero rather than external circumstances. This is, and I may have just flat out been wrong on that. Sealed evil in a can usually is what works the stories. The wishes are all monkey paws wishes. Eventually, they're going to get fulfilled in a horrible, terrible way. Wish Curse actually comes from one of Blake Snyder's own stories called Blank Check, where a kid gets a blank check that he fills in with $10,000 million. And oh, I remember it. that one. That was what Macaulay Culkin tried to do after Home Alone. No, it was not Macaulay Culkin. It was really? some other person. He looked like him. I was like yeah. nine at the time, so I don't remember. But yes, it was written by Blake Snyder, the person who actually wrote all these things down. There is no magic whatsoever. Right. The kid gets the wish, which is granted through having money, but then problems happen. Right, because the money is effectively stolen and he's the criminal's trying to get it back, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So now we have the why done it, which is interesting because you've probably heard of the who done it. This is the why done it. This is usually the mystery of the noir. And we call it the why done it because usually why is more important than who. Hence why, why done it. Finding out the why usually leads to the who as a bonus. Maybe even it's given at the beginning. Everyone knows that the mob killed this guy, but no one knows why. Okay. The three parts of the why done it are the detective, the secret, and the dark turn. The detective oftentimes doubles as a narrator, and it's always a proxy for the audience because he's going to be the character that we usually spend the most time in his head. We're going to see things through his eyes. He usually starts out at least somewhat hard-boiled and pretty often doesn't change that much near the end because he's already kind of cynical. He's a hard-boiled detective who's dealing with this mystery. Okay. We are the ones, usually the audience, who changes by seeing this story going through. At least that is what I've read in the books is supposed to happen, and it kind of makes sense because hard-boiled detective novels, you have the detective, and he's basically the same person at the end. He's going to go do the same things, but he's still going to probably call this as one of the defining points in his life. Then you have the secret. Someone needs to start the story seeking this secret. It could be the detective. It could be a young ingenue who comes into his office and swoons and says, I need you to find my diamonds. Someone stole my diamonds. Going through this, it'll use who, what, when, why, or why, and sometimes how. And the detective needs to be driven by an overwhelming desire to uncover this secret for some reason. It's going to somehow tie in personally with him, which sort of gets into the dark turn. Okay. In the process of Seeking this out, the detective crosses some personal line or a mandate of the group to get the secrets he's after. In doing so, he becomes sort of a part of the darkness often, and he learns that he is complicit in the crime or something very similar, which is sort of unsettling and sort of twists his life a little more. And the draw of these is kind of the darker side of humanity and humanity's nature, and I could very easily see this being a plot of a very less combat RPG, especially when you consider that I described it really, really horrible, but I'm about to talk about how it doesn't necessarily have to be all sorts of horrible and evil and terrible and dark. Because this is Monk, the TV series. We have Monk, who is the detective. He usually knows who the killer is the second he walks in and sees one, and usually has the line, I don't know how or why he did it, but he did it. And that is the secret. The rest of the episode is spent with Monk battling a phobia he has in order to get information. In the end, he discovers how and why the person did it by tolerating one of his phobias in doing so. And that is the dark turn. He has sort of had to face this thing about him. Like, a little stretch to call it a dark turn, but it fits the exact same thing 
what it is here. And in the end, he doesn't overcome the phobia. No, he still has it. He's still afraid of clowns. But he's just dealt with that for five days, and now he's done. Okay. I have not seen Monk, and I've not seen Chinatown. Are there any other examples that you can throw out there for me? Maltheus Falcon. Okay. That works. Does LA Confidential fall into this? Uh, I'm, I'm not 100% certain, but if it's about detectives, probably. If it's about <laughs> mysteries and detectives, it's probably a why done it. Like, whodunits are in the why done it. Because in a movie, when you find out who killed someone, they never go, oh, well, that's all we need to know. You know what? Actually, looking back over this, yes, LA Confidential is another just about perfect textbook <laughs> example of this. Oh, yeah. Also, it's a very good movie, and you should both see it if yeah. you haven't. My, my mind immediately goes to any number of Agatha Christie novels, especially the Poirot ones, because it, you know, Poirot figures out who did it, but who really depends on why. Why was this person killed? Yeah. Yeah. Then points to who, usually. Sometimes it's straight up, oh, this person did it. We have six different people who had reason to do so, but this one was the one who actually did it because of these other clues, yada, yada, yada. But that tends to sort of be the case. This is why they were killed, which means this person did it. Yes, as I was going to say, in Whodunits, no one ever pulls off the mask of the villain and goes, oh my gosh, you're the bad guy. And then they just lead him out and he's never seen again. Because there's always a question of why. Why did you do it? Because we don't care who did it. We care why they did it. Right. Because that is where the interesting point of the story is. So basically, this is every episode of Scooby-Doo. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That works. <laughs> they probably twisted the dark twist into another funny little thing. Yeah, probably. Where... There is a lot of parallel here between this and Monster in the House, isn't there? There's some parallel in the tone of the story. A Monster in the House of being a horror story is usually dark. And the Why Dunnets, especially if it's noir, are usually dark as well. I'm thinking this is generally about kind of the flaws of humanity and what comes out of them. Yes, very much. Yeah, it's... it's... Kind of a different way of looking at it. You still have your detective as a protagonist. It's just, it can take a tragic turn where the only way he can solve this problem is to take a tragic step down, to end up lower than he was. Anyway, then we have the rite of passage, which is sort of compared to the rags to riches. It's basically any sort of life transition story fits in here. The essential ingredients are a life problem, the wrong way to attack the problem, and a solution. And it's pretty clear what goes on. The life problem, it's what must be dealt with. It's the story. It's growing up. It's finding a house. Finding mm -hmm. a job. Finding the girl you want to marry. Like finding the guy you want to marry. Often the problem needs to offer no real actionable solutions. It's not like, well, you go right down this path and you'll find the job you want. You'll, you'll find your perfect job. Just go here and punch this card because then you have no story. Okay. There's usually the wrong way to attack the problem. The wrong way to attack the problem, it's likely a simple answer that can be broken down to small little sound bites that are easy to follow and come from an intramersional for six payments of nine ninety five. It's a thing that it's not going to give you the actual answer to your question. Right. It's just a stalling tactic. It's a diversion from confronting the real pain and having to make true growth. Okay. And then finally, there is a solution. It involves the acceptance of a hard truth and the knowledge that the hero must change, not the world around him. It is sort of the hero finally bowing. In the institutionalized, you have the question of, do I change the world around me, or do I conform to the world around me? And in the rite of passage, you always conform to the world around you in some way, even if it's in a small way that lets you sort of change the world around you. Can I suggest a sample here? Yes. Up. 
up? How so? He's got a problem, right? Mm-hmm. There's no good way to deal with the fact that he's now alone. He's got the mm-hmm. wrong way to attack the problem, and then he discovers the solution of, you know, accepting. Yeah, I can kind of see it. I actually am going to go with a more stereotypical thing, knocked up. Okay. There's a very big life problem, but for both characters. Yeah. They both start attacking it in probably the wrong way, more so for the guy. He's got this website and things like that where he, he wants to do his own thing and smoke a lot of pot and be himself. Mm-hmm. But in the end, he has to grow up and change. And, and in the end, he does actually get to help run a website, but he's doing it at a company. He has sort of made a bow to the world, and in doing so, he has been allowed to become a full person in the path that he wanted to. He gave a token nod to the rest of the world going, yes, you exist, I'm going to become a productive member of you, rather than just sitting here and going, well, I can run my own website and never get any hits. Right. The appeal of the story is usually nostalgia and sympathy, because we've all been there. We've all been beaten down. We may not have faced these problems, but we faced problems that look very similar. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what one of the things that got me thinking about Up as an example. Yeah. This is probably not a good fit for a main RPG story plot because this is a very deeply personal story. No, but you know what? It is a very good side plot. Yeah. It's great for if a player wants to do this themselves. So if your player wants to say, well, I'm on this journey of rite of passage and it's a very simple thing to do because all it needs is your problem that you say, GM, this is my problem and this is what my character's currently doing to do it. I want you to find the solution that my character will eventually, you know, run with. It's a very easy thing to do to throw in there. I'm not even entirely sure that the GM has to come up with a solution because looking at this and listening to the way that you're describing this, I, I hate to reference our... Okay, I don't actually hate to reference our Shadowrun campaign, but the characters are all kind of doing this for each other, <laughs> even though their issues are all different. Yeah. And actually, something else that I'd like to add is every time I've been in a role-playing campaign that really clicks, the really, truly good ones... Good player chemistry has led to the player characters doing this with each other. Yes. The three campaigns in the one shot that were all truly good had a strong element of this built into them. Huh. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Now, second to last one, we're almost through this, is the buddy love. Main theme of the story, my life changed for having known someone else. Okay. Snyder has outlined three different types of the story. There's the buddy story, the love story, and the boy and his dog. And each one of these needs the three things that I'll turn to later. But the buddy story, you basically have two characters They start off hating each other. They realize that they need each other and work well together and hate each other even more because of that. There's conflict, conflict, conflict. They have one final big fight and then they surrender their egos to win. Okay. Which is a quote, I believe, directly from Snyder. And this is every buddy movie, buddy cop movies, yeah, all this different things I like that. I come up with a half dozen off the top of my head. Yeah. yeah. Then you have the love story here. It's about the same as the story above, but they come together romantically, not just in a partner equal friends relationship. Snyder advises that they should start hating each other, but I don't think that they always have to start hating each other and not always do in romantic comedies. But they always are separate. Can they just kind of start out sort of ambivalent towards each other? Is that sufficient? Well, I, I think there has to be some awkwardness in the relationship somehow. Like, the one romantic comedy I think I ever liked was Fifty First Dates. She doesn't exactly hate him. He, she can't remember him mm-hmm. day to day. That's awkwardness. Like, she hates him one day, and then the next day they kind of figure it out. So, 
it's an awkwardness that they have to figure out how to get over. Okay. It's not strictly speaking, hating each other, but there are romantic stories where they do start out hating each other. The one that draws to mind is the ugly truth. Oh, sure. The final one is the boy and his dog, where we have a catalyst character that enters the hero's life and changes him, then leaves. This is free Willy. This is E.T. Yep. This is last Charlotte's web where the red fern grows. So bridge to Terabithia. Yep. That's a good one. Yeah. The main character has a profound change, and the secondary character has little to no change. Yeah. Because they're usually an animal. Usually an animal or something that doesn't last terribly long and isn't quite at the same level. All right. Now, okay. in order for the story to succeed, it needs three things, like everything else here. It needs to have an incomplete hero, the counterpart, and the complication. An incomplete hero, it needs something to become a fully actualized person. And again, in this one... The more neutral cast character, the better. This is something that he actually describes in the book. Have either of you seen Lethal Weapon? Not uh, the first in, one. I think I've seen the whole thing in right. bits and pieces. Who would you say is the standout character in Lethal Weapon? Riggs, the Mel Gibson character. Yeah, yeah Mel Gibson. Yeah, The main character is Danny Glover, because the story's about him. Right, but again, it's the neutral <laughs> mask character. He's funny, but he's not as yeah. standout. Mel Gibson's character is in there, but... It's Danny Glover who we see sitting in the bathtub. It's Danny Glover who we see going through all this other stuff like that. Because the story's about Danny. His counterpart is Mel, and Mel is crazy. And as it says here in the counterpart, they're usually somewhere on the spectrum from unique to wild and crazy. They have everything the main character needs. They are the yin to the yang. They are exactly what will take to fulfill this. Uh, They might change too. And they probably have some problems that might get worked out even if they don't change all that much. Good example of that being Rush Hour, where mm-hmm. both characters have to change a little bit. Yeah. When paired with a neutral cat mask character, like as said in what usually needs for an incomplete hero, they often will become the breakout character that everyone remembers. But the story is going to be about the other guy, which is something that is often interesting to note because a lot of times I've seen stories people write where they try to make a buddy cop story and they think the main character is the wild crazy guy which leaves absolutely nothing for the counterpart character to do but make the guy more boring which we don't want to watch a story about a really wild crazy interesting guy become more boring and down to earth we want to watch a story about a boring and down to earth guy get a little wild and crazy okay if that makes sense yeah and then there is the complication. It's the thing that is really keeping them apart. Often found in rom-coms and things like that. Very clearly seen. And it's usually something that is somewhere between silly to utterly ridiculous. Like, I've made a bet with someone. I don't remember anything from the past day. Right. It's a thing that has to be overcome. Okay. And by overcoming it, they'll be able to come together. And the main draw here is sentimentality, because it's about people coming together, and possibly humor, because a lot of times in the buddy things, it's you've got the comedy guy and the straight man. Right, or two different kinds of humor. Yeah, that's more Rush Hour, yeah. Like, Rush Hour is a good example for me, because you have this very quick-witted verbal humor, and then this physical comedy from Jackie Chan. All right, the final one is The Fool Triumphant, and they've actually compared this one in the book to the superhero, and it has a lot of similarities. And it tends to poke fun at things that we find too serious. Also, there may be a straight man who's in on the joke and can't believe the fool is getting away with his ruse, like Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump. This is the character sees for the fool what he is, and if he's stupid enough to get interfere, then he'll likely get a brunt of the slapstick, which is what kind of this story is about. 
The three things that you actually need in the story are a fool, an establishment, and a transmutation. Now, the fool, I compared it to the superhero because the fool has superpowers. He just doesn't know it. He is the guy that everything will go right for, even while everything's going wrong for him, too. When I think of the fool triumphant, I can't really think of anything other than any earnest movie ever. <laughs> because he is a fool, and he is always triumphant. In the, most the Pink Panther. Yes, the Pink Panther also. Sergeant Bilko, maybe? That's one I don't know. Okay. Yeah, I don't know uh, that one. But I know the Pink Panther, and yeah, yes, that's... Inspector Clouseau from the Pink Panther. Yeah, exactly. People think yeah. the Pink Panther was a thief. The Pink Panther was a gem. Right. And who the main is... character of it was <laughs> Inspector Clouseau. Yes, a bumbling idiot who tends to solve the crime, even if he doesn't quite end up with the credit all the time. Yes, but in truth, the fool is ignorant of his true power and any cost they might have, so he doesn't really care about what if he's causing problems for anyone else, because he's just too foolish to see it. Innocence is his strength, and ignorance, either his own or others, are his greatest protection, because everyone underestimates him, and he's too dumb to see the problem, or the pain of walking it in sometimes. The Emperor's New Groove, possibly? Possibly. A little bit. I would say that's more Voyage of Self-Discovery kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, that's true. That's more Rite of passage It's definitely um, got some elements of this in it, but... It's got a little bit of that. But. Well, having a silly character does not mean you have a... Th- no, but I mean, Kuzco is pretty foolish. <laughs> I mean... He's pretty close, yes. Yeah. The, oh, look, now he's cooking in a diner. Yes. And, and there is a transmutation, but there isn't really an establishment that he's going yeah. after. Yzma doesn't count? Yzma's a single villain. I wouldn't really call it as an establishment. Because it's usually a huge organization that the Fool is on. Okay, this is definitely describing Sergeant Bilko, though. The Fool must be disregarded at first, and usually only a single insider knows the Fool's true potential. And that insider's warnings are never heeded by others, because it's just the Fool. What can he do? What can one man do? Right. These Fools are probably the closest Mary Sue characters you'll ever want to get, as most of the time, fate conspires to let them succeed. Usually because they don't ever give up and put in a lot of work, so they do earn it. And everyone else is criticizing them while they do it, so that cuts down on their Mary Sue-ness. Because usually the Mary Sue is the person who's fawned over who wins. Right, and who doesn't have to work to win. It's, oh yeah, I just do that. The Fool is the person who is ridiculed who wins. Right, okay, I got you. The the Fool takes all the success of the Mary Sue and puts it in a more palatable container for the audience to watch because, yeah, he's working at it and you want to succeed because he's the underdog. And yeah, you do it, man. And then you have the establishment. This is the thing that makes the Fool stand out. This is what makes him the fish out of water. Another great idea of this, they quote in there that I really, really liked it, was Mrs. Doubtfire, they say, is a full triumphant story. Legally Blonde is a full triumphant story because it's about a girl, kind of ditzy and things like that, who goes to Harvard Law School and no one thinks she's going to succeed. She's definitely the fool, and in the end she is definitely trying. Kind of the other way around, I'd say maybe Miss Congeniality. Yeah, <laughs> kind of, that's yes. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the federal wrecking machine goes to a beauty pageant? Yeah, that works. Exactly. There's the establishment, <laughs> and you know she doesn't know she's good at it. So there you go. And there's a transmutation, because as we said in the transmutation, the fool must become something new. They adopt a new name or a disguise. And quite literally, she adopts a disguise. Now, this could be by accident. This could be just, like, I think in Legally Blonde, the transmutation here is she goes and she starts getting a new wardrobe and she starts remaking herself into the image. 
and it might be more of an internal change, like a special training montage. I would say a lot of underdog sports movies fall into this one because this is the underdog story. Like in Mighty Ducks, I see Mighty Ducks as the full yeah, triumph. Yeah, actually, that. in the Mighty Ducks, there's a line in it when his boss fires him. Are you ready to lose your job over some kids some game? Are you ready to fire me over some kids some game? Pack your personal belongings. <laughs> yeah. But as I said, this is uh, the last one. Uh, and I believe it. Don't they change their name from the Ducks to the Mighty Ducks? It's been a long time. But anyway, I'd say this is pretty hard to tell in an RPG. First of all, because it requires that the characters not know their own powers. And characters like knowing their own powers. Also involves that the characters not question everything and just go with what happens, and players are really hard to do that. Uh, among all of those, the hardest thing that they have to do is roll 20s all the time, because they have to succeed, even if they are underprepared, because that is what the fool does. Now, would this work better if you really wanted to do this in an RPG setting and a very narrative system like Trouble with Rose or Fate or Fiasco or something? It would have to be something diceless. I will disagree with you because I have heard an actual play that fell right into this. Okay. Kind of by accident. Really? Yes. Happy Jacks and their Tales from the Floating Vagabond actual play where everybody played a different Harrison Ford character all pulled together and running through a sequence of other movies from other directors. <laughs> right? So you have... Decker from Blade Runner, you have whatever the guy from The the Fugitive, you have Indiana Jones, you have all of these huge, you know, you have Han Solo, these huge Harrison Ford roles all together kind of going, and now we're in Gladiator. All right, whatever. It's wacky and fun. Not really so much a transmutation, but... Was there an establishment? Yes, kind of. So it was pretty close. It, it's a little iffy, right. but it's as close as I have heard. So I would say look that up because, hey, it's pretty funny. Tales from the Floating Vagamond is a neat and very old game. It's from the late 70s, okay. and it's really cool and very slapstick funny. I will reconsider what I said. You don't have to always roll 20s, but failure needs to be pulled back a whole heck of a lot. And that's what happened in this game. If someone fails a roll, they succeed, but something bad happens would sort of yeah. be how you would have to run this game. And the story is like, well, your character does it, but because you're a fool, you also do this unintended consequences thing. Yeah, so that is the last of these. And are there any other notes, comments that you, Peter, or you, Grant, have about these various things I have No, no, I, I think I probably learned more in this episode than probably the last 40 combined. And uh, <laughs> thank you for putting up with my inept questioning. This was good, yeah. Thank you for putting up with my inept ability to answer, because I will admit, I am giving you all the information I know here, and while I know a lot, I'm not an expert. This is not information right. that I have collected myself. Like This is information that I have learned through reading of books and things like that. I want to plug again the Save the Cat books. Save the Cat, the actual series will read about it. If you just want to learn more about each one of these, I would suggest buying Save the Cat Goes to the Movies. Because it is all about the different genre of movies. It breaks each one of them into its categories, and then runs through in a beat list. And so it's really good if you're interested in how do you lay out a story. Okay. okay. Well, yeah. Cool. Alright, well, <laughs> we've been going at this for a while, but I do want to thank you guys for listening, and Brandon, thank you for going through this with us. Yeah, no seriously, thank you. This is 
this was a lot of material and you covered it admirably. So <laughs> absolutely. And just a quick heads up for listeners. I am working on getting some other guest hosts, including the one we had trouble getting on before. So that should be happening and you should expect to enjoy that sometime in the next couple of episodes. So hooray. Thank you guys. Thanks for listening. All of you at home or in your car or at work or wherever you happen to be listening. And from all of us here, have a good one. Yeah. See you later, everybody. Bye. This podcast episode is a production of Saving the Game and may be redistributed under a Creative Commons non-commercial, non-derivative license, so long as appropriate credit is given. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. Saving the Game is syndicated through inroadsministries.com, rpgpodcasts.com, stitcher.com, and iTunes. To hear past episodes and to connect with us or our community of listeners, visit our website at savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, and happy gaming.